For the mystics, the only way to know God is to experience God. And the only way to experience God is to unlearn everything the ego has been trying so vigorously to manufacture since our infancy. In order to stop wetting the bed and become productive members of society, that, quote, deep inner peace circuitry of the right hemisphere, end quote, has been sidelined along the way. To bring it back online, say the mystics, the simplest and most effective method is to die before you die. So that's a quote from the book Immortality Key by my guest today, Brian Mararescu. Brian graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Brown University with a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. As an alum of Georgetown Law and a member of the New York Bar, he has been practicing law internationally for 15 years, and he lives outside of Washington, D.C. with his wife and his two daughters. Now, what's interesting is that (laughs) the book that we're about to discuss and the concepts that we're about to dive into uh, are very different from the bio that I just read you. So Brian is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Huh. <laughs> what an interesting title. So here's here's a little bit about the book. It's a groundbreaking dive into the role that psychedelics have played in the origins of Western civilization and the real-life quest for the Holy Grail that could shake the church to its foundations. Okay, so what <laughs> what are we talking about? So this is a bit of like an Indiana Jones style, real life, archaeological, ancient Greece, historical quest to unearth exactly that, the Holy Grail. Um, and on this journey, Brian talks about this religion that was nameless, that had um, ceremonies as far back as we can sort of see, uh, ceremonies and rituals, but predominantly in in ancient Greece. And a lot of this took place in a place called Eleusis, uh, which we talk about in in this interview. And Brian gets into this tradition that we are starting to piece together, that historians and archaeologists are starting to piece together, that he specifically has uh, ventured into, that is this ceremony and this ritual where uh, this faith or this religion used psychedelics, used um, psychoactive beers and wines in their rituals, in their ceremonies. And so this is such an interesting, interesting conversation for, I mean, for, for countless reasons. But he talks about how in ancient Greece, you know, this, uh, this practice took place how it transitioned into the Christian faith, um, you know, how the Christians adopted brewing different types of beers with psychoactives in them, which I had no idea. Uh, and it's just a really wildly um, fascinating, but also kind of mind-altering look at our history. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have him on the show, because as the saying goes, those who control the past control the present. And the idea there is that as we... Uh, as human beings, shift the past narratives as we, you know, go, you know, in, in the past, have gone on book burning brigades, you're right, where we just have completely wiped out certain civilizations, certain, you know, religions and faiths, uh, certain belief systems, certain ways of being, certain information and intelligence and knowledge. A lot of that has been wiped from the manuscripts, from the record books, from the libraries, so that it ceases to exist. And what Brian is has done is that he sort of pieced together this incredible look at how maybe psychedelics and psychoactives were much more apart and much more active in the ancient world than we ever expected, than we could have ever have dreamed. And so this is a really fascinating conversation. Uh, I hope that you check out the book. I really enjoyed it. Um, it is, it's a, it's really such an incredible and interesting, uh, in, interesting story and journey, but more so this is such a radical conversation to be having. So I hope that you share this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. Um, it goes a long way and without any further delay, please welcome the author of the New York best New York times bestselling book, Immortality Key, Mr. Brian Mararescu. Thanks for having me, man. 
such a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. And um, when my production manager told me that we that you'd been booked in the show, I think I did like a little dance in my living room. I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, the the sort of like the the geeky the the geek in me was just so excited. Um, and so, not that you have to be a geek to consume this um, this content, because. I certainly wasn't a geek in high school uh, or at school at, at all. I was like the, I was the guy that failed grade 12, you know, the guy that was like out partying. Uh, so I'm just, just saying it has a mass appeal. All right. So before we dive into, to everything that we're going to talk about, which is so exciting, um, tell us a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. It's hard not to think of the birth of my first child. I know you may or may not be in the same position yourself. Uh, so congratulations to you. It, I mean, it's it's a defining moment, man. I was I was 33 years old when my daughter Julieta was born, and you know you're old enough at 33 to have lived a good life. You know what, what seems like a long life to me. So I remember that life, and yet it all it seems kind of very gray. Um, mm. You know, I, I definitely have strong memories, uh, but when when Julieta was born, you know, life took a, a very different turn for me. Um, and as for most parents, as you might find out soon, you know, the, it was the pre-quarantine before there was a quarantine. I mean, my wife and I sat inside with this baby who was born in the wintertime. And so, you know, we, we just hunkered down with her and didn't really go anywhere because we couldn't. Mm. You know, we tried to go to restaurants. We tried to walk around Washington, D.C., and it became tougher and tougher. And so I mentioned all that because that's when I became inspired to start really writing this book. Now, I'd been researching it since 2007, 2008, but it really wasn't until her birth that I started to take it a lot more seriously. First of all, there was a lot more time for it. Um, I had nothing else to do, no social life. But second of all, it was really inspiring just to sit there with her. Um, you know, I'd, I'd rock her with my feet in the little, uh, little, little baby chair, and I'd be reading and writing, and all these notes I'd been compiling for years and years suddenly started coming together. So it was, um, that was a miracle moment for me. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. We, we got home from, we got home from, uh, the hospital, uh, yesterday. And I mean, we were there, we were there for a while, but what an, what an incredible experience. And so, I mean, I'm just like right out the gate. And so I appreciate the, the dad insight and, you know, just glimpses into, the potentiality of writing and creating with this little life force, with this little creation right, right by our side. Yeah. Such a, bless, such a blessing. Well, okay. So, so let's talk about that creation, right? Let's talk about the book. So you wrote this wonderful book called The Immortality Key, which I just totally consumed and fell into. And I, I wouldn't even say I fell into it. I would say that actually it pulled me in. Um, and I'm a, I'm a big reader. I probably read, you know, 70, 80 books a year. And, um, and I'm kind of picky. <laughs> I've got I've gotten picky over the years, you know. <laughs> and I found that this book really drew me in. It was funny because when I first, uh, you know, when I first saw it, all I saw was the um, was the sort of like outline for the book, and it said a groundbreaking dive into the role psychedelics have played in the origins of Western civilization and the real life quest for the Holy Grail that could shake the church to its foundations. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, that sounds like a fiction novel. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that, didn't even, that didn't even sound like it's real. So, you know, there's so much here that when I thought about where we would begin, I would just love for you to maybe break down for the listeners who may not have read the book yet, the sort of premise of what you are trying to tackle in, in this book. I'm trying to find the Holy Grail. Which, which doesn't seem like a real thing. You know, I grew up in the 80s watching Indiana Jones. And when I was in law school, instead of reading my law books, I was reading Dan Brown. And that, that's the stuff that always fascinated me, man. You know, I, I studied Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit as an undergrad at Brown, um, which doesn't really get you anywhere. Uh, so that's, that's why I wound up practicing law. But um, I was really fascinated with antiquity. My, I, I mean, as long as I can remember. Um, and when you're fascinated with antiquity, there's one thing that keeps popping up again and again. So, I mean, even when I, when I was in high school, I heard of these mysteries of Eleusis, the best kept secret in history. So, I mean, how can you hear about these mysteries and not wonder what was going on? And some folks, you know, haven't heard of them. But, you know, the mysteries of Eleusis, for example, are kind of like the ancient spiritual capital, like the Vatican of the ancient Greek world. You know, so they had all these crazy gods on Mount Olympus and all these stories. 
but they also went to this temple to experience some kind of death and rebirth and thereby achieve immortality, um, including the consumption of this magical potion. We don't know what that was. Uh, but in any event, this mystery had been out there for so long and very little hard scientific data to prove what was happening at Eleusis one way or the other. Um, and it's important because whatever was happening there just may have influenced the earliest Christians, uh, a lot of whom were Greek speaking, by the way. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, this, it's this big riddle, this big mystery, and it all boils down to like two basic questions. Uh, number one, did these ancient Greeks actually use drugs to find God? Was that the secret behind this magic potion that lured all these pilgrims to Eleusis? And number two, if that's the case, is it also the case that the earliest Christians were also doing psychedelics? Um, because if one culture had it, it stands to reason that the Christians in many communities um, who inherited these traditions may have also availed themselves of the same technology. But again, no hard scientific data. So I spent 12 years scouring the earth for it. Incredible. Incredible. I mean, it sounds, it does sound like a modern day Indiana Jones uh, sort of, sort of quest, you know, <laughs> I feel like the movie is always embellish, embellishes. Did you have a, like a, like the proper hat on your, yeah, on your journey? Oh, over the I have that man, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel you on the, on the undergrad degree. I, I minored, I, I had a, I have a music degree uh, with the opera major. And so I was a classical singer for, I was a classical singer for many years, which is like, you know, a dying art in its own way. Wow. Um, but okay. So, so bring us back maybe to maybe set the frame. So, so we're, we're talking about Eleusis. We're, we're talking about ancient Greece. Roughly when is this transpiring? Tell, tell us a little bit more about the time period that we're in. So when you're thinking about ancient Greece, we're basically talking about like the classical period, which is 2,500 years ago, like the fifth and fourth centuries BC, a few centuries before Jesus. Um, but we think that these rites in some form or another exist from about 1500 BC to the fourth century AD. So all told, you know, close to 2000 years, which is to say as long as Christianity itself has been around. And it's not some minor thing. Um, it's, it's recorded as kind of holding civilization together. It calls to the best and brightest, like Plato, uh, Pindar, Sophocles, later in the Roman period, Cicero, Marcus Aurelius actually rebuilds Eleusis when it's almost destroyed by barbarians. So, I mean, this thing was like a central pillar of ancient Greek civilization. I mean, the same civilization that gives birth to democracy, the arts and sciences, some of the music. Uh, that you're a fan of, um, philosophy, the very nature of a university. I mean, this same civilization also had this crazy sanctuary where you would go once in your life, only once, uh, drink this magic potion, have this beatific vision, and be convinced that you would never die. It was only those who went to Eleusis, went through this process, who became immortal. So that's pretty hard to explain. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. So there's, there's sort of like this Mecca that people are, the people are flocking to and this sort of, um, I mean, you call it a, a secret religion or like a, the sort of like the secret, yeah, religion. Let's just, let's just stick with that. Why is that? Was it, do you, do you feel like it was a secret back then? Or is it something that has maybe been hidden over the, over the years? Because I think when we look at things like Catholicism and Christianity and, you know, a lot of the major religions, the, you know, it, they don't really uh, support or uphold the, the past, their predecessors. They don't look well <laughs> on them often. So, so, you know, was it a secret back then or has it become a secret over time where it's sort of been buried and a lot of this information has been destroyed or, or sort of attacked? Secrets within secrets within secrets, which makes something like this just totally impenetrable. So let, let's start from the beginning. The rites themselves were all secret, right? And this, again, is in the same civilization that is famous for, if anything, producing literature and producing this phenomenal literary output you can spend a lifetime as a classicist studying. I spent a few years studying it. You can spend a whole lifetime, several lifetimes, trying to study the total output of the ancient world. By the way, we have about 1% of that output, according to scholars. And so 99% of whatever was produced in antiquity has disappeared for lots of different reasons. So there, there's the first level of gatekeeping. Um, you know, to reveal what you saw in that sanctuary at Eleusis, um, which is just, just northwest of Athens, by the way. Um, I mean, to, to reveal what you saw there is to, was, was to risk execution. 
And we have different mm-hmm. accounts of people who were imitating these mystery rites illegally in their dining rooms in Athens, which was a bad thing. So it starts as a secret, again, which is weird inside a very literate society. It's an oral tradition. There's no doctrine. There's no dogma. And then as the centuries go on and the Christianized Roman Empire tries to get rid of what came before, a lot of things went missing. Uh, and so you can imagine that a secret mystery rite like this would be among them, right? No written records, nothing to uh, record, remember what was happening there. And so all we're left with are these bits and clues. I call it like, you know, a thousand pieces inside a million piece jigsaw puzzle. That, 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 that's all we have. But it raises big questions, you know, because the, the, the secrets don't really stop there. I mean, this is the kind of thing that classicists talk about, right? But now not many people are studying Latin and Greek today. I mean, I got lucky. It, that's a really weird, esoteric thing. It was weird for me in the 90s. I think it was weird a generation before that. Um, you know, uh, earlier in the 20th century, the 19th century, it wasn't so weird. Uh, the founding fathers, uh, most of whom were, were fluent in Latin and Greek. But like today, it's just it's such this niche discipline. It's hard to get a job doing uh, something like that, let alone in the humanities in general. So. I mean, I call that secrets on top of secrets because there's just, you know, to penetrate this stuff, you, you need a, a real fluency in antiquity. And that's a, that, that's hard to come by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what you're saying is you had full support from your wife and family over the past <laughs> decade as you undertook this undertook this very lucrative endeavor. <laughs> <laughs> Not, nothing, yeah, nothing but high stakes when you're doing Latin and Greek. Yeah, there many eyebrows were raised over the course of this investigation, I must say. But, uh, you know, my wife has been, as you're, as you're aware yourself, my wife has been brilliant. Um, you know, we had two little girls at home when I was writing most of this. I mean, they were three and one at some point, four and two, five and three. I mean, they, these, they, those are tough years to be off in the Vatican mm-hmm. catacombs. So uh, uh, props, to, props to PJ. Yeah, I was going to say she she must be wonderful and and just just a, a saint in her own right to to support through all this. And so, yeah, props. Um, I'm curious because, you know, you talk about the Holy Grail, right? This sort of like seek of the Holy Grail. Maybe give a little bit more context. I'd love for you to pull on that thread a little bit and explore that because I think when people think about the Holy Grail, of course, they think of a cup, they think of maybe Indiana Jones, they think of some biblical references um, and and the sort of lore behind the Holy Grail. But but what's the tie-in here for you and, and, and why do you feel like that is relevant in in your quest and in, and in this sort of immortality key that you're talking about? Right. So in the end, uh, I'm after the grail. And the, the grail, as I see it, is is the cup that was used by Jesus at the Last Supper, somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. Um, you know, this it's it's the defining moment in Western civilization, right? When he's, he's seated there, think of the, the Da Vinci painting. You know, there's Jesus mm-hmm. and, and his 12 mates celebrating this, this really crazy thing. It's called uh, the Mystical Supper in Orthodox Christianity, which I think is really cool. In the Russian church, it's actually called the Secret Supper. So yet yet another layer of secrets. And there's a reason for that, by the way. It's not entirely clear what was going on there. Was it a Jewish Passover? Was it a Greek mystery meal? There's lots of clues that we can talk about later. But, you know, if you you think of that cup that was used at this defining moment, when we go from a pagan world to a Christian world, and now we're living in 2021, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it all hangs on that moment at the Last Supper. It's that moment that is celebrated every Sunday in churches on every continent across the world for the two and a half billion Christians there are today. So it's a big moment, is my point. And yet, I say all that because we have zero archaeological evidence for that cup or what was in that cup, more specifically. And so if we really want to know what was in that cup, the cup uh, that was Jesus's blood, he says, that is offered to his disciples and which we consume today, in the Catholic Church, for example. I'm a lifelong Catholic. I think it raises a question. Um, why do we assume that the wine that was blood, that was in that cup, has any relation to the wine of today? Um, it doesn't, actually. The second you start looking into the sources, you start to realize that wine at the time was ordinarily spiked. It was mixed with all kinds of plants and herbs and toxins. And again, so if you know the Greek world into which Christianity was born, you know that this is a common feature. And so it's, it's a well-founded question to begin asking, what kind of wine was that? And if we can't find the grail in Jerusalem or thereabouts, and maybe it went missing through all kinds of wonderful lore and legend, 
maybe at least we can look to proxy sites in the early Christian communities um, all around the Mediterranean to try and figure out once and for all, what were they putting into this wine? What did the grail mean to them, the earliest Christians? And so I think these are questions worth asking because the entire faith kind of hangs on what's in that grail. Yeah, well, let's let's go down that a little bit further. What what were some of the things that you found about the origins of the Grail and, and what was in it? Because I think that's somewhat at the essence of what what you're really talking about in this book, which is pretty phenomenal. Right. So I mentioned the minute you start looking into ancient wine, and so there's there's lots of ways to think about ancient wine. You can you can look at ancient wine in the first century A.D. and you can also trace it back centuries and millennia, which I do in the book. So I mean, just as one quick example. If you think about wine in the age of Jesus, the first century AD, so there's this uh, there's this manuscript that survives uh, called the Materia Medica, and it's written by Dioscorides, who's described as like the father of drugs. He's the father of pharmacology. This is a really famous manuscript. When manuscripts are disappearing, uh, th- this this one survives for some reason, and it's preserved by monks, as a matter of fact, um, in Italy and elsewhere over the course of the centuries. It's, it's a, a largely, hugely influential manuscript. And in this Materia Medica, Dioscorides has a whole chapter dedicated to spiking wine, spiking it with all kinds of things like frankincense and myrrh, but also toxic things like mandrake, for example, one cup full of which will, would be lethal. And even talks about spiking it with different solanaceous plants, which are very hallucinogenic. And he says that they produce not unpleasant visions which is a great definition of a psychedelic. So, you know, there in the first century AD, at the same time the Gospels themselves are being written, we have this really famous manuscript talking about spiking wine. So at least in the literature, there's that. But then when you go back centuries and millennia, I go all the way back to ancient Egypt. I talk about them spiking their wine with all these herbal additives. Um, In 3150 BC, so three millennia before Jesus, we have actual botanical evidence of the ancient Egyptians spiking their wine, not with psychedelics, but certainly with all kinds of different material. Fast forward uh, to 1700 BC in the Canaanite period, uh, my friend Andrew Coe at MIT famously um, identified the wine from the world's oldest wine cellar at Tel Kavri, which itself was spiked with additional psychoactive ingredients, things like honey, storax, terebinth, cypress, cedar, juniper, mint, myrtle, cinnamon, etc. So, Again, when you start looking at wine, you start to realize pretty quickly that it's this really complex beverage you're not going to find in Napa. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's a there's room for a, a market in there somewhere. You know, the more the more complex wine that you're not going to find in Napa today. <laughs> um, good. Okay, so there's there's these ceremonies happening. You have this sort of use of wine. Tell me a little bit about where the psychedelics start to enter? Like, where do you start to bring us back to the moments where, you know, you're doing this research, you're, you're, you're going into the, you're going into the past, going to the ancient Greece, you're, you're in Eleusis, and you start to pull together some of the threads of maybe, maybe there's hallucinogens in the wine. How does that come about? Right. So again, I just, I, I, I laser focused on, on these potions and these beverages. So we're talking about the Holy Grail. It's some kind of wine concoction. And then we were talking about that, that magical potion at Eleusis. It's not wine, actually. It's some kind of beer concoction. We know that from the ancient records. It was some kind of barley-based drink mixed with water and mint. And that's all we knew for the longest time from 8th, 7th centuries BC in the hymn to Demeter. And, and that's all there was until 1978 when, when Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman, who famously discovers LSD, and this guy, Carl Ruck, who at the time was the chair of the classics department at Boston University, they released this scandalous book, The Road to Eleusis. They'd solved the puzzle. They'd solved the mystery after thousands of years. And their idea was that this, this primitive beer potion was essentially an LSD-like potion, um, that it was spiked with ergot. Because ergot is this naturally occurring fungus from which Hoffman himself was able to synthesize LSD back in the 1930s. And so if he could do it, why not some protochemist thousands of years ago? It's an elegant theory because as long as grain has been around, as long as beer has been brewed, and we think that's at least 12, 13,000 years, it stands to reason that just maybe some funky ergot, one of these alkaloids inside the ergot, made its way into this beer. Again, a very elegant theory, no hard scientific data. So back to these two questions, right? 
if that magical beer was psychedelic, there's got to be evidence for it. And if there's evidence for that, maybe there's evidence for this spiked grail potion in Christianity. So I started with ancient Greece and I turned up a big nothing. I went to I went to Eleusis. I talked to the excavator. I said, hey, why don't we just test these ancient vessels, many of which were recovered, excavated from right there at this famous sanctuary. They have dozens sitting in the museum that overlooks the Telesterion, the sanctuary. And she said, no, we can't test them because they've all been treated. They've all been cleansed for conservation purposes. So, you know, there was there was no evidence at Eleusis. So you take a big step back. You think about the ancient world and you look elsewhere. There were Greeks all over the place. Um, including in North Africa, in the Holy Land, in, in what is today Turkey, and really far west in Iberia. So I started reading all these archaeobotanical journals and actually came across this ancient Greek sanctuary that reeked of the Greek mysteries. The same mysteries that were being celebrated outside Athens were also being celebrated in some form, right, in their local adaptation of these mysteries in what, what is today Spain, in Catalonia. And it's this crazy site, um, kind of off the map in the middle of nowhere, um, Mas Castellar de Pontos. It was excavated in the 90s. And when Enriqueta Pons, the archaeologist, was on site there, she dug up this miniature chalice, like two inches high. And she had it tested. I don't know why. because it, it's, it's still not common today, actually. But, you know, 25 years ago, she had it tested under optical microscopy. And turns out there was some ancient beer residue in there, just like the primitive beer from Eleusis. So it's starting to match that crazy theory, that crazy theory from 1978. In addition to the beer, they also found the microscopic traces of ergot, the very same ergot that that crazy doctors Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck had had predicted back in 1978. So it's it's this really compelling piece of data that 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 kind of lends credence to the possibility that just maybe these psychedelic potions were really floating around. Hmm. So an ergot is a byproduct of corn or, or wheat. What's, where does that, where does that play in? Yeah, it's a fungus. And so it's, it's okay. a naturally occurring fungus and, you know, in, in wet, warm conditions, it'll, it'll, it'll start growing on the grain. It's, it's like this, this long slender blackish kind of horn. In fact, it's called the devil horns in some, in some cultures, because it looks like it's just these, these, these blackish spikes that come out of the grain, whether it's, it's more common on rye, but it'll also happen on barley and wheat. And again, that, that could have been happening for, for 12, 13,000 years. We don't know how, how far back it goes, but um, you know, even in brewing today, it's a problem. You really have to be careful. When, when uh, I, I talked to a brewer in Germany about this, and he said, this stuff is toxic. You, I mean, even today we look out for it and thank God it has this distinct color so we can separate it. From, from the grain when we're brewing. I mean, it's, it's still an issue today. Um, I was reading a story yesterday about this Italian island um, that had these mass hallucinations in the early 20th century because ergot had, had somehow gotten into their bread source, uh, which, is, which is pretty wild. And so these people were just like tripping balls on this beautiful island um, in, in, <laughs> in the Mediterranean um, for, for years, um, seeing ghosts and women flying off to do their food shopping in Palermo. So, I mean, you know, th this this stuff, it, it's been around for a very long time. Lots of legends around this. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the United States could use a mass psychedelic ceremony right now. You know, just everybody. <laughs> just, I feel like, uh, I think, wasn't it like Timothy Leary back in the 60s or 70s where they they had, once they started doing the research, I can't remember if it was Timothy Leary or, or one of one of the, the other people in the cohort, they were talking about, uh, you know, like spiking the water systems of New York City and and just putting mass amounts of LSD into the system, you know, so everybody would have this this sort of awakening experience, the Satori moment. Yeah. Um, I I, I want to continue down this path, but I'm curious to learn a little bit more about why only once. You mentioned that before. It's like people would have this pilgrimage, this sort of like sacred pilgrimage once in their life. Why is that? What was what was sort of sacred or, or sanctimonious about that? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase the great Alan Watts. You, you get the message and hang up. Um, you know, that, mm. that, that's my view on psychedelics today, by the way, if this is all true, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a psychedelic virgin because uh, I wanted to approach this a book, you know, as objectively as possible. But when, when you look in, into antiquity, you see a lot, obviously, a lot of ceremony, a lot of ritual around this. You see a long preparation. You see this, this event that is just soaked in myth and meaning 
for the people who are doing it and knowing that it would be this, this transforming experience, um, what Ruck calls the culminating experience of a lifetime, this one and only thing, I think you approach it a bit differently you know, than, than, than drinking a beer every Friday, um, which I have nothing against, by the way. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's the kind of thing that, that, that's hard to understand today uh, because we're, we're so distant from those 2,500 years that separate us from this event. But, um, you know, you, it would take about 18 months to start preparing for this. And, and you would visit once and not drink the potion. It was only on your second visit that you'd become the full initiate and drink that potion. But again, that only happened once. And it comes with all this expectation and excitement behind it. You make this long parade, this pilgrimage from Athens to join the ranks of Plato and Sophocles and all the rest. It welcomed women and slaves. Anyone who hadn't committed murder and spoke a bit of Greek could do this. And, and there you are, face to face with the goddess at some point. And, and you're experiencing the death and rebirth of Persephone herself, who'd been abducted into the underworld by the king of the dead. And here she comes back into the Telesterion, and you're there to witness it. And it's universally described as this transforming event um, without giving us the details. And I mean, what, what could that be? We know it was a visionary event. We know that for sure. The, the only question is, was it facilitated by drugs? Was it a mix of the drugs and, and all this archaic ritual that went with it? We don't know, but it was, it was something awfully special. Yeah, say, say a little bit more about what the ceremony, maybe based on what we know, looked like. Because I think one of the things that I've been talking a lot lately about with some of my guests is the the death of mythology within our modern culture, and that a lot of our fundamental myths and archetypes and symbols that we would normally that would normally sort of hold a deeper truth within our culture and society are are sort of vanishing. You know, I think within um, American uh, society specifically, I had a, a man named Francis Weller on the show and we were talking about how the, the heroic archetype within Western society is massively eroding and, and it's dying away and we're, we're going through this sort of transitory period. Um, but maybe set the stage a little bit. You, you mentioned Persephone, you mentioned, you know, going through this, this ceremony and that it was sort of steeped in myth and symbols. What did that, what did that look like? And what was it meant to kind of evoke within the uh, participant? Because one of the things that stood out for me in the book, which seems to resonate across many religions is this idea of dying before you die. Mm. And, um, and, you know, I've, I've had those experiences and they are, they are, they're hard to describe when you come back from them. Mm. You know, there, there's something that words almost can't, um, they don't do justice. You know, you, you find yourself trying to explain what you experienced, what you saw, what, you know, what you, what you took part in and you're just left with things that sound when you say them nonsensical, you know? And so maybe just set the stage. I know there's a lot in there I just said, but maybe just set the stage for the listener of like, what's happening in these ceremonies and, you know, how does Persephone play into it? And, and what did people generally experience? I, I asked all those questions you just asked when I, when I went on site there a couple of years ago and I was talking with the chief excavator, Papi Papangeli, um, who was not a fan of the psychedelic hypothesis, by the way, which made for a very oh. fun very fun conversation. Um, but what a name, though! What a what a name. Papangeli, exactly. Papangeli. She's uh, she's fantastic. So shout out to Papangeli. Uh, she was so nice. Uh, we we walked the whole site together, and I and I, I actually got to to take you know the the, the same well the sacred road the Hirosoldos. You 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 take this sacred road from Athens all the way to Eleusis. It's, it's it's about thirteen kilometers, um, and you arrive there at this at this sanctuary complex. And you're somewhat distanced from what's happening in the temple. There's a lesser and greater propylaia, these kind of monumental gateways that lead you further and further into this mystery. And things are happening along the way. Even before you get into that sanctuary, um, you, <laughs> you take a look at the mouth of hell, for one. There's this, there's this uh, Plutonion, this, this ancient cave that, that is just uh, cut out of the rock face there. And so... When I asked her what was going on here, she said, yeah, maybe there was some kind of like theatrical performance. Maybe there was a Demeter and Persephone duo kind of reenacting this, this great myth, which is essentially the, this rape and abduction of, of, of a daughter, um, Persephone, from the grain mother, Demeter. Demeter is Mother Earth. You know, we have this, this, these abstract notions of Mother Earth and nature. And for the Greeks, it was Demeter and she was real. <laughs> you know, mm. she was, uh, you, you went there to meet her. 
and her daughter to see them, um, to um, to empathize with them, to suffer along with them. And, and I think to somehow experience this actual death and rebirth yourself, just like Persephone. And so we think about like this funky Greek myth, of course, they're, they're just trying to explain the seasons, you know. Persephone is abducted. That's winter when she when she resurrects. That's spring. Everything's blossoming. Life is good. But you know, for them, these were sophisticated people, right? They they invented the theater of Dionysus in Athens, and so you know, and we've never found stage props um, on site, uh, no costumes and makeup and things like that. So if it was theatrical, I don't think it was the main event. I think there was an actual experience of death and rebirth among the initiates. So I mean, Aristotle himself says that. The initiates go there not to learn something, mathane, where we get mathematics. They go there to experience, to suffer something, pathane. Um, and that had to be something visceral. Um, we don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was celebrated with you know, roughly 3,000 of your mates inside this darkened sanctuary. When you finally got inside, by torchlight, priestesses are mixing this potion. You down it and you witness the, the birth of this goddess. Um, her her rebirth from the underworld. And and maybe there was something, if it was Ergot, maybe you were experiencing that along with her because Ergot isn't like a classic psychedelic high. It's kind of crazy. It's more likely to give you gangrene and convulsions and demonic hallucinations than anything like very celestial. So, I mean, I don't know what the chemistry was. We, we haven't recreated it. But if it was Ergot or something like it, um, it's it, it's an interesting proposition. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, the, there's just the way you described it. I was like, yeah, that would that would be one one heck of an experience. <laughs> that would be one heck of an experience. Okay, so so fast forward a little bit because I like there's so much in this in this book that I wanted to dive into, and I'm trying to um, you know paint some of the storyline for our listeners because it really is such a, a I don't know. It's it's for me. It was one of those. It was one of those reads where I found myself wondering like. Not, not only wondering, you know, how did this sort of disappear, you know, and why isn't this more common knowledge? And I think you do a good job of then interweaving and bringing in the sort of Christian religion and and looking at the the passing on of some of these same experiences, some of these same um, symbols and rituals that go from ancient Greece into the the Christian religion, which you know is which is very um, very common, right? Very known. So tell us a little bit about that. How do some of these rituals and symbols and traditions get passed into the into the Christian religion? Right. So where do they start to show up? For that for that transition, so we've been talking about Eleusis this whole time. Uh, because it was probably the, the the more well known, the most famous of the ancient mystery rituals. And and all that means is some kind of secret ceremony where there's an experience of some kind of death and rebirth. But there was another god, Dionysus. And I focus a lot on him in the second part of the book, because after tracking down evidence for this psychedelic beer potion, I'm off to hunt for psychedelic wine. And that, that is Dionysus, the god of ecstasy and madness and theater and, and you know, mystical rapture. Um, and just maybe he's the god of psychedelics. And, you know, I asked that question because the Greeks had no word for alcohol. I think that's really important to, to remember that, that that word, our word alcohol, comes from the Arabic. It's Semitic. Um, the, the Greeks had no word for that. And so when you think about the potency and the power of beer and wine, to the Greeks, it wasn't like the ethanol. It was, it was something else. And so Dionysus was kind of like the god of intoxication writ large, by any means. And it's often, you know, he's often associated with ivy, which for some reason in the ancient sources is described as kind of maddening, um, maybe, maybe visionary. We don't know if their ivy is the same of, uh, as our ivy, but it's talked about that way. Um, and so there, there's this word used to describe wine, which in the Greek is oinos, but it had another word and it wasn't alcohol. It was pharmakon, which is where we get our word pharmacy, which means drug. And so for like a thousand years across ancient Greek literature, wine is routinely referred to as a pharmakon, right? And the same wine, by the way, that we talked about earlier, that is mixed with all these plants and herbs and toxins. So you know, the pieces are starting to come together on how one of these wine concoctions could have made its way into Christianity. And, and I think it does that at one of the most famous events in the New Testament, which is the wedding at Cana. Now, the wedding at Cana, for those who don't know, um, is the, the, this water-to-wine miracle, right? This famous water-to-wine miracle in the Gospel of John. It only happens in the Gospel of John. It doesn't happen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's only recorded in one Gospel. And what's happening? It's, it's Jesus's first miracle. 
It's his very first miracle in John. And that miracle of transforming water to wine and getting a, a bunch of drunk people already drunker, by the way, uh, which is exactly what happens in John's gospel. They didn't need more wine. <laughs> I mean, they ran out. That's great. The party could have stopped. They were already drunk. And Jesus makes 180 more gallons of fresh wine, uh, which is great. I think that's a great thing. So uh, that's often described as the signature miracle of Dionysus. I can't imagine a Greek ear of the first, second centuries AD hearing that story and not immediately thinking of Dionysus. And I think that that's the whole point. These water to wine miracles were very prevalent on mainland Greece. Um, the priests would, would enter into the Dionysian sanctuary, leave basins of water, come back the next day, miraculous transformations into wine. I mean, th this stuff was known. Not only that, that would happen on what today the church celebrates as the Epiphany, the same day, January 5th, January 6th. So the Epiphany is the God's coming out party, the Epiphania, the appearance. It happened to Dionysus. It's happening to Jesus. Here's John writing about it. Here's your new wine God, just like that guy. And so if John's presenting Jesus like that, it raises the question, was he also trying to communicate something else about this new wine God? Is it possible he was trying to communicate to these very Greek-speaking, you know, Greek-imbued communities that they could find one of these funky Dionysian potions inside the Christian church. Um, and so I spent a long time in the book just, you know, examining all these parallels between Jesus and Dionysus, these wine gods, these, these sons of God, born of a virgin, mm. who, who transformed the grape into their blood to become our salvation. It's, it's, it's the same story for centuries and centuries. So fascinating. I mean, it's so fascinating how there is this sort of transition from, uh, you know, one tradition, one myth into the new myth, into the new tradition. Um, I'm curious, you talk a little bit in in the book about the sort of like roles um, that, that both of these characters play, but the roles that each uh, individual within the ceremony would play and the role that like women would play within the ceremony, which is a little bit different than uh, than maybe in, in, the, in the Christian tradition today. So can you just speak a little bit to that? Yeah, there, there's another parallel. So when you think about these ancient Greek mysteries, and we haven't said it yet, but the, the real point is that you're thinking about women, um, which needs to be highlighted. So Eleusis, this great sanctuary, so it's dedicated to Demeter and Persephone, obviously two female goddesses, but it was originally a female rite of initiation. And even by the classical period, we still think it was priestesses who were mixing the Kukion, otherwise facilitating this underworld journey. Um, so lo lots of lots of female imagery there. In the Dionysian religion, it's it's the same. It's you know his his followers are Minads. They're called Minads. These are the women who you know lose their mind under the intoxicating effects of this sacramental potion of Dionysus. It's a potion. It's it's based in wine, but it's it's a potion and it drives you crazy. And Euripides talks about this in his. The Bacchae, which is, you know, 405 BC, four centuries before Jesus, uh, people are going crazy on this, on this wine. Uh, it's largely women. Now, in early Christianity, there is a, a decent presence of women. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily the version I was taught in Catholic school, but the New Testament does talk about lots of different women. Like the very first female convert to Christianity on the European continent was, was a woman named Lydia. And in Paul's letters, he mentions several different women especially in Rome, women like um, Mary and Trifina and Trifosa. He calls this woman Junia. Uh, Junia is the foremost among the apostles. I mean, really strange language about women. Mm -hmm. And when I spelunked into the catacombs under the streets of Rome, I was looking at all these frescoes from the third and fourth centuries AD. And there you see women consecrating wine in what looks like an early version of the Eucharistic Mass. And it, it was women who were responsible for doing this, just like they were doing, uh, you know, for that for that mixed wine of Dionysus, just like they were doing for that mixed beer of Demeter and Persephone. Um, there you see the same tradition, and it all disappears in the fourth century AD as the church um, starts to bureaucratize. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because from what I know of Christianity, I can't remember which book it, it's in, but there's sort of an alluding to the fact that Mary was supposed to be the the sort of predecessor to Christ, that, that she was supposed to take up the, the church and, and you know, continue it on in, in some fashion. Um, but oh, then, as Magdalene. you said, yeah, Ma I mean, yeah Mary Magdalene. Yeah. John, the same John's gospel that, that begins with a Dionysian water to wine miracle, it ends with Christ's resurrection, the first witness is Mary Magdalene. And so I say in the book that for a time, 
for a, for a brief moment in history, Mary Magdalene was the church. She was tasked mm-hmm. by Jesus as the very first visionary witness, right? She sees this resurrected magical Christ. She is tasked with carrying on the message. And then later on, uh, an additional chapter is added to John's gospel. And it's, and it's the men who are, who are then mm-hmm. tasked with carrying it forward. Before time, it was Mary Magdalene. Hmm. So interesting. Okay. All right. Well, you dropped the you dropped the cookie on word there before, and I really had no idea how I was going to bring up in conversation. So I'm glad that you did. So <laughs> I was like, how do I how do I ask him about the cookie on in a in a you know in a sort of direct way? <laughs> so so unpack unpack this because this plays a very important role uh, within the book and within the within the um, ceremonies. Right. The, so the, the cookie on is that primitive uh, beer beverage we've been talking about. Adelusis. Um, you know, we we think it's it spiked with ergot. If you talk to um, you know Albert Hoffman and Karl Ruck, um, but but something like it, sir. I mean, is circling around. And so there was a kukion that belonged to the Eleusinian mysteries. Even before that, if you look at Homer, the very first literature that emerges from Western civilization in ancient Greek, in Homer's Odyssey, he talks about Circe, the witch, the witch Circe, the prototypical witch. And the verb used to describe what she's doing with her potions is kukio. She's mixing. It means to mix. She's mixing up these different drugs, actually casting drugs into wine, just like you would see centuries later. They're called pharmakalugra. She's, she's, she's mixing up these baneful drugs into her kukion. So there was like this literary mythical kukion. There was an actual kukion um, at, at Eleusis itself. And then if you talk to Pat McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, he thinks he actually dug up some version of, of the Kukion from the Mycenaean period, 16th century BC. He finds um, in, in this grave circle, he finds a pottery beer mug uh, that tests positive for what he calls a Minoan ritual cocktail of beer, wine, and meat. And so, I mean, these potions existed. Uh, I think the only question is, like, were they psychedelic? If so, how did the formula change from, like, Homer's time to Plato's time to the Christian time? Um, th- those are the really, you know, th- those are the real significant questions we have now because we know they existed. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, I f- what I find fascinating about all this is that most of the pieces add up, right? You have the ceremony, you have these ritual experiences, you have people re- sort of reporting their their experiences that are very mystical in nature. You know, this idea of of dying before you die, like all of these pieces, sort of bring. It's what you hear people talk about when they go for an ayahuasca experience or, you know, take mushrooms or do LSD. It's like they have they have this experience and, you know, a lot of maybe not all of them because some of it's been very um, uh, commercialized. But a lot of the ceremony even surrounding psychedelics today are still ritualistic in nature of. Uh, something similar-ish, you know, setting people up to have this otherworldly experience. And so I'm curious if you could just say a little bit more about psychedelics within the Christian faith and where that sort of showed up. Because if I remember correctly, you talk about like in the 15th century, you know, there's a a big part of the trade uh, within the Christian religion was actually this psychedelic beer. And it, so I'd love for you to, to touch on that because I remember reading that and I was like, really? <laughs> like, that, that seems so hilarious and hypocritical because, you know, here we are 500 years later and it's like, you know, no mushrooms, no LSD, no, you know, none of that stuff. Yeah, beer beer was much cooler 500 years ago. Uh, so <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't just in ancient Greek times or all the way back to like Gobekli Tepe, I talk about 12,000 years ago. Um, this notion of beer and wine as these mixed beverages continues. And so, yeah, in the book I read about the Catholic Church was in, in charge of uh, producing these Groot ales until the 16th century when King Wilhelm IV of Bavaria issues the purity law that we still have today in 1516. Um, and it reduces beer to barley, water and hops. And so, I mean, I love hoppy beers, by the way. I love IPAs. Uh, but But hops didn't really enter into the ingredient list until the 16th century. Before then, there were all kinds of funky things still being mixed into the beer all the way through the 16th century. And the Catholic Church actually had a role in that, a bit of a monopoly um, in making their beers. We know that, that monks are famous for making beers today, especially the Trappist monks. Um, so I mean, beer, beer has this like really rich history 
um, that, that we often forget about. And, you know, it's, it, it wasn't until that time, by the way, the industrialization that men took over the trade. Again, fully up until the 16th century, it was, you know, the, the, the brew makers were women going all the way back into Christianity, um, you know, ancient Greece, uh, the Roman period, ancient Egypt, and, and further into, into prehistory. This was the woman's trade. And so if you're on the hunt for a holy grail, you know, sooner or later, you're going to bump into women and their particular expertise over this technology. It was really high pharmacological technology. Yeah. And so what would you say are some of the missing links for for you in terms of being able to like confirm some of the missing pieces? Like, is it just that our our I think it's called uh, archaeochemistry and um psychopharmacology i think is i think that's right is like do we have the proper technology to to go back and confirm these things is it just that we're we're we we need more uh, like you need more access to some of the some of the ancient relics because i think what i got from the book was as you're pulling at these threads you know you're sort of going on this journey i heard a lot of resistance and you know shut doors and not wanting you to go down certain paths and so maybe just speak a little bit more about what it was like for you to embark on this journey of saying hey you know i think maybe there was this sort of religion behind a lot of these religions that were having these ceremonies that were maybe using psychedelic drugs what what was that experience like for you uh, it was a lot of fun. A lot of, I mean, when when one door closes, uh, another opens. I mean, so you know, the door kind of closes in Eleusis with Puppy Papangeli, but then it opens again in Spain, and here's this you know psychedelic looking beer potion from the second century BC, and then it kind of closes again when I go to the Vatican and I'm spelunking in the catacombs and going through the archives, and they're sitting in all these ritual containers, but there's a closed door there, and so I have to look elsewhere. And we didn't talk about it, but, you know, I find in the archaeobotanical journals this other spiked wine from 79 AD that was preserved uh, by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, another funky-looking wine that was spiked, it seems, with cannabis, opium, henbane, uh, which can be quite hallucinogenic. So, like, a very rich wine. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing. Oh, <laughs> uh, by the way, yeah, that's also, also lizards, frogs, and toads in that. So, uh, I don't know what the hell was going on. I don't think anybody does, but we do know for an archaeobotanical fact, that these potions existed. And so again, the, the questions are like, how far did this go? I mean, was this an in, in, in underground even then? Was this um, a steep minority? Or was it some meaningful percentage of the pagan world, the early Christian world? Um, th these are questions that we should be asking. Because, you know, if, if for some of the earliest Christians, the Holy Grail, their interpretation of the Last Supper, the mystical supper, the secret supper, if, if their interpretation of that was a mind-altering event, we should think about that today. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it was the majority of the churches. I say that at, at the end of the book. But in a place like Corinth, that was pretty close to Eleusis, by the way, um, where maybe some of the Corinthian Christians actually were also initiates of Eleusis, or in a place like you know Pompeii or south of, of Rome, where these Greek mystery rituals were all still happening, and we know the potions were being manufactured. You know, it's not a huge leap to suggest that maybe some of the earliest Christians were into this kind of stuff. Maybe they were trying to recreate these visionary events that are recorded by the earliest Christians, like Paul, for example, who's a visionary, like Peter, who's described as being in a trance in the New Testament. I mean, so for those of us who aren't born natural psychics and seers and mystics, maybe some of these potions help to open the doors of perception. Yeah, I think one of the things that I found so fascinating about your work is that you you do such an exceptional job of telling this story, of of piecing together the story of how these uh, these ceremonies, these rituals were sort of spread, and where you found evidence um, of them happening outside of Greece. I mean that that for me was just phenomenal, and then to see how it sort of um, you know, propagated through into into Christianity and some of the rituals there. Um, I mean, all of that was just all of that was just incredible. I am curious, you know, today we talk about um, and I'm just sort of tying these two things together and, and I would love to hear your take on it. And then we're, we're going to have to wrap up here in a minute. But today we talk a lot about set and setting. You know, the psychedelic ritual has become a clinical thing. 
And the biggest pieces of it are the environment that you're in, right? And, and, the, and the setting, the ambience. And so what I hear you sort of describing is the ancient version of set and setting and that it wasn't necessarily a, a scientific thing. It was more of a, a spiritual experience. Is that, is that roughly accurate? I mean, that, that's what I find when I look through all this evidence, you know, so I went, I went searching for potions, which is the substance, but I also went searching for set and setting. And so I tried to reconstruct the mysteries of Eleusis and the mysteries of Dionysus. And I try and show you what an early mass looked like because, you know, mm. for 300 years, there were no churches, no brick and mortar basilicas for 300 years. Christianity is this illegal thing meeting in private dining rooms or literally underground in these catacombs where the living are interacting with the dead in some kind of bizarre ritual. That was Christianity. So that is the set and setting of the birth of the biggest religion in the world. And I think it's worth thinking about whether you're a believer or not. Uh, you know, so this uh, just fascinating stuff. I mean, you know, if, if we're going to use these compounds today in any kind of religious setting or ceremonial setting, I think that we have to look back and piece together some of these puzzles and maybe take some lessons from antiquity. And, you know, I, I see sacred settings today, like in the Native American church, for example, that uses peyote, or like the Santo Daime, which uses ayahuasca, as its Christian sacrament, by the way. Um, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for some of these sacraments to make their way back into some kind of religious setting. And I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, but if the lessons from antiquity offer anything, it's that um, it's, it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know who said this, um, but uh, and I'm, hopefully I don't botch the, the quote, but it's basically something along the lines of he who controls the narrative of the past controls the future, the, the present. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think what's interesting is that a lot of these things that we're discovering that maybe are, were, are, are on the fringe or have been outside of the, the sort of orthodox narrative of what took place in the past are emerging at a very interesting time, right? They're emerging at a time where psychedelics have become so mainstream and and have become popularized and that people are fighting for them, right? Not not necessarily governments, not necessarily religions, but just people in general are are sort of pushing this forward. Mm. And yeah, and I think that's the I think that's the very important piece, but I think it begs the question, two questions I'm going to end off end off with and I'll, I'll let you tackle them as you see fit. One, in modern day culture, and I think you kind of alluded this, this before, do you feel like we could benefit from bringing some of these ancient rituals into how we use psychedelics or explore psychedelics? And secondly, when will you try psychedelics? Because I think that's the, that's the curious, I mean, I love, I just honor and respect deeply the fact that you tackled this subject being somebody who hadn't gone down that path. Because I think in, in so many ways, it's easy for people to look at that and say, oh, well, he just, he's an advocate for it. And it's like, well, he has no idea. So, but I am curious if that's something that's on the, the you know, sort of quote unquote agenda for you at some point. <laughs> My agenda is awfully full right now. But yes, uh, the, the answer to both questions is, is the answer. Is, it's, it's one answer. I mean, I feel like I, I'm kind of waiting for that, that ritual ceremony to come together. You know, and, and, and for me, you know, I, the, this isn't like an anti-religious book. It's, you know, I, I go down this kind of Dan Brown hunt for, for secrets and, you know, this, um, this, this Indiana Jones crusade for the grail. But at the end of it, I walked away with a whole new vision of, of Jesus and who the historical Jesus was and who these earliest Christians were. And to me, I see a lot of pagan influences. I see a lot of mystical states, visionary states. I see a lot of things that aren't talked about necessarily every Sunday. I found a really compelling version of the faith that just, it makes a lot of sense to me historically how one became mm. the other and how this illegal thing managed to attract people. And so, I mean, to answer your question, that's the kind of like ritual that, that speaks to me. And I mean, as crazy as, as it sounds, I, I think that there's, I think there's, there's a lane for that in the modern day church. And it's not, it's not replacing the Sunday Eucharist. You know, it's, it, it, this isn't for everybody, obviously. Um, this is kind of like if you're into psychedelics, you're probably into mysticism, the notion of retreat and pilgrimage, you know, these spiritual exercises, whether it's yoga, meditation, etc. Um, psychedelics can be a tiny, tiny component of a much larger spiritual toolkit. So like for me, um, I can envision, you know, a, a nice monastic retreat somewhere where it's, you know, it's men and women and spiritual technicians and 
and, and psychological technicians um, all getting together to create this event that to me feels very authentic to what I think the earliest Christian experience actually was, which was small, uh, intimate, um, but more than anything, um, mind blowing. Yeah. Well said. Well, when you're ready, I'll certainly help you put that together. <laughs> Mostly because I want to be there. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll definitely come to that, to that ceremony and take part in that ritual. Um, well, listen, Brian, thank you so much. I want to honor your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Uh, for everyone that is, that is tuning into this podcast, um, certainly head on over. If you haven't read it yet, maybe you've heard about it, kicking around the immortality key, the secret history of the religion with no name. It is absolutely fascinating and riveting. I cannot emphasize it enough. It's such a great read. Um, Brian, where can people learn a little bit more about you? Where should they follow along on your journey? So I, I won't spell my last name. So if you, if you just go to theimmortalitykey.com, you'll see my website and it links to my social media. I try and stay active on Twitter and Instagram and things like that. I'm getting better at it. But uh, theimmortalitykey.com has, uh, has all the latest and there's, there's more adventures on the way. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I can't wait to hear about them and have you back on the show and discuss them more. Uh, for everyone that's out there, don't forget to share this episode with just one person that you know would enjoy it. Uh, it goes a long way to getting the show into the ears and on the phones of other people. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. We'll have all the links for Brian's work in the show notes. So check him out there. Mm-hmm.